When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to individuals active in fields threatened by the Trump presidency. These are the stories of important, difficult jobs, jobs that are likely to get much more important and much more difficult in the years ahead. For this episode, which we recorded just before Trump's January inauguration, we spoke to Eugene Perrier, an organizer with Answer Coalition, which was planning a protest on the day of the inauguration. Though he works for Answer Coalition on a volunteer basis, that effort is sometimes like a full-time job for Perrier. He says that he occasionally sits through eight-hour-long meetings, and that's just a sliver of his total commitment to the organization. Per year, led us through some of the many responsibilities he's had to fill in the lead up to the big day, from securing permits to fundraising to sitting through those endless meetings. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Per Year talks to us about how Answer Coalition plans to deal with any counter protesters that show up and how they prepare for other security risks. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, so my name is Eugene Perrier, and I'm a volunteer organizer with the Answer Coalition. What does that entail, your work as a volunteer organizer? So it entails, uh, <laughs> it's funny, it's almost like a jack-of-all-trades position. But, you know, principally what that means is when we're putting on something like the next big thing we have coming on, like the inauguration, there's a whole range of different pieces that we can all get into from, you know, the just basic nuts and bolts of, like, how do you get people there to how do you contact the media and what are all the materials and things you need. And so usually being a volunteer organizer essentially really means is that I am part of a core base of individuals that when we start a project, whether it be a big thing like the inauguration or whether it be something that's sort of a longer term, let's say, educational campaign about a a foreign policy issue or a domestic issue, that we sort of sit together and we kind of divvy up. And oftentimes it's relevant uh, to different things we do. So for example, I do podcasting, I do media stuff. So I often will fit into that role as well or working on social media, whatever it may be. But part of that sort of initial group of folks that says, okay, okay, here's our list of things that we have to accomplish. And then based off of that, where are the areas either where we know, you know, we're good at things or we're just like, you know, going to jump in and figure it out as we go. This is still a volunteer position Mm -hmm. for you, as I understand it, presumably for 
the other organizers that you work with. What is it that drives you mm. to sync all of this energy and time and, and other resources into this effort? I think what drives me is a sense of, well, who is going to do it if you don't do it? I mean, I think that one of the things that we've seen over time, especially with, you know, sort of progressive social movements, is most of them, it's always surprising to people, are sort of driven by that kind of, like, the civil rights movement people. I mean, in SNCC, I've talked to SNCC veterans who live in D.C. who told me that, like, they would go months without getting paid, you know, and they'd just be begging people to feed them. But it was the right thing to do. The labor movement, people putting it on the line. And I feel kind of the way about the challenges that we face today, whether it's, you know, defending workers' rights, raising the minimum wage, fighting... Uh, uh, around policing issues with Black Lives Matter. I also work a lot on gentrification issues and the way this all scales up nationally in a way that I think is 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 clearly in opposition to, to what we're calling the Trump agenda is sort of like if average everyday people don't take ownership over our own life, can we really complain? I mean, I got involved as an activist when I was in high school around the Iraq war, and that's how I got involved, is it seemed like, okay, we're gonna go to war, doesn't seem like a good idea, and so someone should do something, and I'm looking around and like, I am someone, and I might not be able to do everything, but I can do something. And I think by and large, the way big social change happens is every individual person taking on whatever little piece they can take on. So insofar as I can volunteer and have the freedom to be a part of this, I think that it's just part of sort of my duty as someone who wants to kind of pay forward a lot of the advantages I have had, for instance, to be able to go to college, to have had parents, you know, who were able to, to provide me like a basic decent living, to be able to be out here. And there's so many other people who are, who are still fighting and still struggling and still pushing on so many different levels that it just seems to me that it's something that it's a little thing that all of us can do. And as I always say, like any good organizer will tell you, if you only have 20 minutes out of the week I can find some way to put you to use in a way that is super relevant. So we always say it's all about a quality of sacrifice. You know, an hour to one person might be way more than like a week to somebody else. And I think that that kind of, of sense of sacrifice is what it's really going to take to move this country in a more progressive direction is when you have people in the millions taking that 20 minute or that week or that spring break or whatever it is to put in some of this really hard work. And with that kind of ethos, we can do something. In the almost 15 years, coming up on 15 mm -hmm. years that you've been uh, doing this kind of organizing. Did you do any sort of specialized training or preparation uh, to to kind of learn the, the skills, make sure you were ready to hit the streets? All on the job. Uh, <laughs> I think I think one of the great things that I have seen happen since the rise of the movement for black lives is the growth of more sort of training and leadership spaces. You know, when I, I got involved in activism in the early 2000s, um, you know, it was still a relatively conservative period in this country. And a lot of the anti-war movement, the anti-globalization movement was sort of, it wasn't new, but it was really sort of these like green shoots kind of emerging out of nowhere. And we were just kind of doing our thing and seeing where it went. So uh, I, I really just just over the years, uh, by kind of being thrown into fights and jumping into stuff that I uh, maybe never expected, have just sort of uh, uh, learned as we went in sort of an apprenticeship way. I mean, I've been lucky to have uh, a lot of people around me um, from the civil rights movement, from the anti-Vietnam War movement, from the labor movement, who have been doing this for a number of years, who can sort of give you those on-the-job training kind of tips. But it is very much the way I've come about, almost like an apprenticeship, the way we've set it up, where you're sort of doing the work as you learn. So let's take a step back. What is Answer Coalition? What, what is it doing, especially with regard to the presidential inauguration, which which we're 
looking towards, if not looking forward to, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. as we're mm -hmm. recording this uh, uh, the week before. Mm -hmm. So the Answer Coalition stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. We've been around since 2001. Uh, we led the first demonstration against uh, a military response to the 9-11 attacks in just a couple weeks after that. And since then, as our name implies, we do a lot, we've done a lot around the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the situation in Israel-Palestine, police brutality work. And so, you know, really a lot of what we, we do is to try to make sort of those social justice connections between what Dr. King called the triple evils, poverty militarism and racism. And so uh, as it concerns the inauguration, uh, as <laughs> people perhaps would not be surprised, uh, we are organizing a, a big rally. We're going to have a big setup down at Navy Memorial um, at 7th Street to really sort of not only have a representation of, of opposition to pre the, well, then President Trump's agenda, but also to be able to, I think, give uh, people from around the country who are, who are listening live on Pacifica Radio or watching it on C-SPAN or whatever it may be, a sense of what kind of grassroots activities and actions and things like that are happening around uh, the country uh, uh, and will probably continue to be happening over the next four years in this I guess what some people are calling a resistance to Trump. So, yeah, so it's going to be sort of what people sort of expect and maybe know, which is one of these sort of large, big rally setups right there where the parade is going to be. So if, you know, you're listening and you know D.C., it's like Pennsylvania Avenue. So it's all the stuff you'd expect, the sound, the stage, uh, you know, getting the speakers together, what is going to be the different pieces in terms of signage in addition to whatever people bring on their own. So it's going to be a lot of what people think of, I think, in terms of the traditional sort of rally piece, but then it also has a lot of very particularistic elements because this is the inauguration. So it's not like a march, you know, it's a rally. It's in one place. Uh, it also has all the sort of different security components to it. It also has sort of a um, excitement component since you also have people who, who want to support the president's agenda. So it's that sort of, of deal. How long have you been working on this? How long have, have you and your co-organizers uh, been preparing for this protest? So we've been preparing for this protest for about four-ish months. I, I mean, this is something that in the Answer Coalition we have done for, for many years, which is to have spaces for people to raise social justice messages on the inaugural route. So in the most general sense, we knew that we probably wanted to do it maybe, say, six months out, we said we probably are going to do this one way or the other. I would say in terms of like actually working on this, it's been about four-ish months. That kind of three to four month period is sort of about what you need um, to really be pulling people from around the country, particularly when you're an all-volunteer grassroots group where, you know, people who are coming are renting bands and buses and they're not big organizations. So you need a good set of months to, for, you know, help people get the bookings in and different pieces like that. For instance, if you're going to bring a bus here, from, say, even New York City, which is you know relatively close, but it's about six hours, five, six hours. You're trying to get here on an inaugural route at about 7 a.m. It takes a little bit more because the bus companies, it's not like sort of the typical take your school kid to D.C. daytime trip. They've got to get a driver, uh, you know, who has the, the right hours so that they can leave very early at two or three in the morning. They have to time it correctly to make sure they're able to get the right amount of rest in the amount of time you want them to stay in Washington, D.C., because there's legal codes around what uh, you know? How long people who drive buses and trucks are able to drive them, and so you have to make sure all that gets worked out. Which also means sometimes the price will be a little bit more because it's a specialty piece. Which means if you're a grassroots group that doesn't have millions of dollars, you need a couple months probably not just to get uh, people buying tickets uh, with enough leave time to be able to pay the installments of when you have to pay. Um, 
and most bus companies are actually pretty great about this kind of thing, and they'll let you like kind of write up until the day before, get money in. Um, so you know, shout out to bus companies for helping <laughs> these things happen. But you know, you want to give yourself some lead time to to get in there to raise a little bit of outside money to let people buy tickets and stuff like that. So I'd say that three to four month period is, is super key. Um, even less so maybe for us in D.C., especially with a lot of experience, we can pull stuff together pretty quickly. There's a lot of companies around here who do stage and sound and stuff like that, and they, you know, do huge things for big, you know, million-person things on short notice. Um, but especially when you're drawing in folks from around the country, that's about sort of the time you need and some of the things that they're uh, considering and thinking about uh, to make that possible. And then on our end in D.C., doing what we can do to help them facilitate it, find bus companies, you know, how do you sell tickets, can we help you customize a flyer that you can use to promote your local city, all that kind of stuff. So it's about networking and organizing. Uh, but but to do that, it sounds like you've been working on this since well before the election. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just about uh, opposing or resisting Donald Trump for you. Absolutely. I mean, you know, from our perspective, uh, you know, so many of these issues, uh, they're, they're bipartisan issues. And, and whether or not you can say X person is, is slightly better than Y person on, on X, Y, or Z, if what we really want to do is push forward an agenda that is, you know, in favor of women's rights, it's not only a constant struggle, but from the point of view of how the legislative process breaks down, uh, as Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. So from our perspective, you know, whether it's a Democrat or whether it's a Republican, the issue is still relevant. I mean, even had Hillary Clinton been elected, obviously, uh, you know, uh, take an issue like women's rights, there is still tremendous attacks against women's rights. So perhaps you could say, uh, I'd say relatively unequivocally, she was better on many of those issues than Donald Trump, uh, especially given his, his statements on sexual assault. But be that as it may, we still need a very strong fight back movement to push back. And for any president, I think it's extraordinarily important when they're making their calculations that they know that the people on the grassroots are going to keep pushing no matter what, because they believe that the issue is important more so than the vessel. So yeah, we were sort of planning this either way. And of course, you have to look at then how do you sort of change the the, the orientation? You know, for instance, in 2005, when it was George W. Bush, uh, the orientation was very much, you know, people coming out to oppose Bush and oppose the Bush policies. In 2008, people were celebrating Barack Obama, but many people still wanted to be out there with a message of, well, don't forget who put you there and the things that we need and other things. So it wasn't necessarily as many people coming to be against him as it was people saying, like, you need to be strong on XYZ issue. So there's a je ne sais quoi, I think, to how it often is, is, is going to play out in terms of the message people want to send. But I think for us, it's very important to be able to have the ability and to maintain the ability of people to come out and exercise their ability uh, on the inaugural route behind these social justice issues. You've been listening to activist and organizer Eugene Perrier. In a minute, he tells us about big meetings and his responsibilities on the day of the protest. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, 
Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. How many hours a week would you say that you put into the organizational effort? I would say in terms of me personally in a week, probably anywhere between like 12 and 30 hours. I mean, it can be almost like having a second full-time job the closer you get because, you know, the further out you are, sort of the more you're just sort of like making things happen, but you have longer lead time. But when you get closer into the the, the day itself, then you're going to start to get these longer weeks where it's almost like you have a second job just because there's more different pieces that have to come together. And there's also less uh, wiggle room in terms of uh, what you're able to do. So, so for instance, uh, you know, right now we're roughly a week-ish out. And so now you're starting to deal with also, uh, you know, people coming from out of town to help you. So making sure that people are getting around, making sure that there are people who are able to, you know, once I were able to get off work, for instance, to go in um, to our office space and to be there for people who are coming from out of town or also in town to help organize folks to come out and get the word out. And it's a week out. So you're trying to get as many people as possible. And in sort of a strange paradox, you start to get many more people who want to volunteer right towards the end because it becomes more of a real thing to them. And so then all of a sudden you need more people to do things like staffing. Um, And then also you look at an inauguration, which is coming right off the holiday. So everyone's kind of like totally checked out uh, for two weeks right before January 1st. And then January 3rd, all of a sudden, like hundreds and thousands of people are like, oh, I want to come. And so then you have all these people who are signing up and doing different things. So you have a greater need to do do basic stuff like data entry, right? Like I'm out handing out leaflets, let's say, for two hours and – you know, now everyone's like, oh my God, this is in like a week. Uh, And I get 30 people who sign up with me right there at a Metro stop while we're getting the word out. Then someone has to then input those names and we don't have like a month or whatever, like we may have had four months ago. Like it's got to happen today because those people are going to need to know what are the updates? What are the things that are coming out? Which can sometimes be daily. Like what are they saying uh, in terms of the Metro? What are they saying in terms of what's prohibited? What are they saying in terms of what the weather is going to be? And we want to be able to communicate all that stuff to people as soon as we know it and not just put it on our website, but send it directly to them. So then that starts to take up more time. So I would say usually between 12 and and 30-ish hours, um, it, it sounds about right. And I think a lot of it also depends on how many folks we get who volunteer. Like, honestly, if I got 20 volunteers, let's say, when I walked out of here today who said they wanted to help, then I could probably be doing maybe five hours worth of work. So, I mean, a, really a lot of it is very depending, but I would say, like, when it, it's, it's I, I, the way I look at it is it's almost like a low-level part-time job, like something you pick up for some extra change here and there up until about a month before, then you're starting to look like, hey, this is like really kind of this, uh, like in the same way you would block out enough time for a second job because like you must have that money. It's like if we are going to accomplish this goal, you know, for maybe a week or two leading up to it, I'll be working more of like second job type hours, knowing full well, though, the more we do and the harder we work, the more we'll be able to reduce our workload because we'll bring in more people who want to volunteer. How much of your time of that 
12 to 30 hours. How much of that time do you spend in meetings with other organizers, just like doing the kind of basic planning? I try to spend like no more than about like eight of those hours in meetings. Now, some of that obviously is going to vary like when things are happening. So like, for instance, before you know where your permits are going to be exactly, you don't necessarily need to meet that long because you're mainly just sort of figuring out where are we going to go, when are we going to go, who are we trying to reach. But then it's like, okay, we're going to be at Navy Memorial and we now know this and we're two weeks out, which is more or less what happened this time. So then we might have to have like one eight-hour meeting to figure out everything that's <laughs> An eight-hour meeting? Uh, well, uh, well, yeah, actually, I, I wouldn't be surprised because like when you work in an office with someone, it's easy enough like to come in like in a newspaper and you have your check-in meeting every morning. These are the things that are happening, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's in the same place. Everyone's on the same accord. It's very easy to do. But when I've got 15 people, all of whom could have generally different schedules and certainly can have different things come up at different times that are going to be more or less opportune for them, then have the longer meeting uh, all at once to then try to set up the amount of time because since everyone's trying to move around based on their work schedule, school schedule, uh, whatever it may be, childcare and so on and so forth, a lot of times it's easier if you can just set it out and then say like, okay, for the next five days, everyone accomplished this, then we'll check in. So I would say, you know, you probably spend roughly like eight-ish hours in a week meeting with people. Definitely like the longer meetings, I think, are something that's built into volunteer-based organizing of all types. And I see it at the national and the local level just because it really is like the most efficient way to like just get everything out of the way and then let people in their own 24 hours just kind of fit it in with our broader scale. So I have trouble as someone who goes crazy in a half hour meeting. Mm. Uh, I have trouble imagining what these eight hour meetings are like. Can you paint a picture for us? What where do you like host these kind of events normally? What's what's the vibe in the room? So usually, and, and I would say many social justice groups are the same. Either if you, as, as we do, we have a shared office space. It's going to be in your office or on a conference table or someone who volunteers office space. Um, so you can have sort of like a, a dedicated meeting room over a certain period of time, place you can put stuff up on the walls for brainstorming. And I would say it is that kind of like combination of like, you know, maybe two parts controlled chaos, brainstorming, one part, like definitely super uh, practical grassroots. So usually that's what you're coming in. You usually have some sense going in. At least one person will take the initiative to make some general agenda based off of, hey, we need to meet uh, either like just to generally check in or like there is this critical piece of information. Like now we know we have a permit. So like we better figure out all this stuff. So someone will take a a stab at a brief agenda. You come in, you'll sort of lay, lay that out, see if anyone wants to add anything, subtract anything, whatever it may be. And then a lot of it is, okay, here's our practical issue. Uh, Let's say now that we have a permit, let's run down all the things that we need to do, um, blah, blah, blah. Or it may just be like, hey, we're three weeks out and this is just a check-in meeting. Let's run through blah, 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 where we're at. And then based off of that, you're going to say, okay, well, what's getting done? What's not getting done? Who needs help? Who can help them? And then how do we make sure the things that we had previously said we were going to do are actually taking place and getting done? Um, And then we're going to move more to something that's going to be like, okay, well, what are some of the other things we can do either building off what we've already done or like what are just new elements that have come in that we have thought of like, hey, someone just volunteered this week who's like a great photographer and they are like a professional photographer and they're volunteering their time. What, uh, and I think with volunteer organizing, this is, it's one of the great things and one of the like challenging things because 
you find, especially in the D.C. area where there's just like a lot of people with skills, people will show up and like they're like highly professional at what they do. But then you got to find out a way to make that work. And it's like, oh, my God. So like that could be something like we've got this great award winning photographer who's like, I'll do anything. And I have eight hours a week or whatever. And it's like, so what do we do with this person? How do we do it? How do we integrate it in with uh, can we integrate it with social media? Can we, you know, find a way to maybe do something on the day of as well? And how do we bring these different pieces together? And so the, usually in these in meetings like this, as you lead up to a demonstration, there's more of that because there's just more wrinkles that come out from uh, people who come out of the woodwork to help you to news events or whatever that you might want to react to or find a way to build off of or that may be more relevant. Or say you someone say, oh, I heard so-and-so you know, on the radio doing such and such. Can we find someone who can track this person down because we'd love to have them speak and, and things of that nature. Uh, and so the first two pieces are usually sort of like a check-in piece, then sort of a brainstorming piece about anything new that comes on. And then the final piece of a meeting, um, and by now you've probably gotten to about six hours. I mean, I think people would be surprised. You get enough people around a table brainstorming about good things to do, um, you can talk about a million things. And so the always the last hour, two hours, then has to be to drill that down because you got a limited amount of time, limited amount of people, uh, limited amount of resources. And so then you got to like go back through everything you've said and just like double check. Okay, who's following this? Who's helping this person? Who's making sure these things happen just so we're like all agreed this is who is accountable for these tasks. And then like, okay, of the new things we want to do, like what of this is like actually realistic and are we actually going to accomplish um and then like how does it fit into anything and this is who accountable for that and then you're going to break so i i would say like it, it it can be pretty grueling i think that like all people longer meetings are are, are you know the longer it goes the more difficult it is you'll take a few breaks people will drink coffee you know you might order food somewhere in there as well but definitely you always feel after it that it was the right thing to do because like then the ability to just go for like five days and get things done is a lot easier. So thinking about this protest in particular, this inauguration protest, what were some of the kind of key elements that that you were responsible for? So in this one, I was working uh, on social media pretty uh, heavily initially trying to figure out what our sort of I guess what social media look was going to be, you know, talking about hashtags and all that kind of thing. Um, I was helping coordinate some translations for some flyers as well. So also just maybe sort of general media, if you will, in terms of just figuring out how sort of we get the word. Uh, I'm also working as a essentially volunteer coordinator on at least one day out of uh, the weekend days and all the weekends leading up to it. So basically, I'm the person who, uh, if you go to the Answer Coalition website and sign up to say, go uh, put up big wheat pasting posters all around town on traffic boxes, like I would be the person who gets there in the morning a few hours before everyone else, open the thing up, uh, get everything printed out in terms of posters. If you have paste, make sure all that stuff is mixed, ready to go. Uh, make sure that if there's flyers or any other pieces you want people to have with them if they talk to people when they're out there doing postering and someone says, hey, what's this about? Uh, all that kind of sort of basic nuts and bolts. I get all that set up, um, figure out to some degree in conjunction with other people where people should go uh, and make sure it's mapped so that we can keep track of everything we do because you have to take all the posters down um, based on legal requirements. So like 
you better keep track unless you want to get fined. And so that's sort of the, what we do in the morning. And then I'm the person who sort of will greet you, say, hey, this is what's going on. Good to have you. Do a little orientation, talk to folks, and then make sure all the teams are set up and then sent out and then just sort of posting up if there's anything that happens. People uh, come late, see if we can find out a way to like get them out doing something and meeting up with people. Uh, you know, people come, you know, somehow or whatever, at different times they have to, there's some issue. Maybe they need some clarification on should we do this? Can we do that? What are the legal regulations on this? I'm there to like answer the phone and say, okay, you know, do X, don't do Y. And so that's one of the big things that I'm doing as well. You've been listening to activist and organizer Eugene Perrier. After this brief break, he talks about fundraising and about how aspiring volunteers can get involved with Answer Coalition. What was the hardest logistical step for this protest? I think the hardest logistical step for this protest was, uh, (laughs) as strange as it may seem, not knowing where people could go. Because with the inauguration, the issue with permitting is so... It's it's really not complicated, but it's very frustrating the way it works, and there's always so much back and forth, and more so than because other the events. presidential inauguration committee controls so much real estate. Exactly. So, like the National Park Service, which stands in for the presidential inaugural committee, and since they have the they they are the National Park Service and can give themselves first in time for all <laughs> permits before they unlock the door in the morning, uh, they control everything. They claim what they claim is that the the presidential inaugural committee then tells them what they want and what they don't want. So if you're mad, it's their fault. But be that as it may, whoever's fault it is, at the end of the day, it often means that like it could be the very last second. Like usually if it's like, let's have a big rally in D.C., you're the one who picked the date, time, place, whatever, and then you go and you see if a permit's available and they can pretty much tell you 99.9% of the time, like, yes, at that moment, at, at that day, they may not approve it, but like you have a pretty good sense whether you're in or whether you're not. This one, it can be like this time, you're two weeks out, and you're just finding out where exactly you can be. So it's tricky because then you're thinking, okay, well, how do we create uh, a buzz around it? And how do we create a meeting point? So you're thinking, okay, well, where can we meet that's that we can tell people that's relatively central to like several different, you know, checkpoints and areas of the route so we can get on there. How do we uh, represent this in our flyers? I mean, is it something where you say, okay, now I'm three months out, so do we put an exact location yet? Or do we maybe not say that and wait till we're like two months out or a month out or whatever? Or do we just say, yeah, let's gather here and do here. And if we have to change it at some point, we'll change it at some point. We'll have two different pieces. So that's always tricky because it really is, you know, people very rightfully so, you know, they want to know the nuts and the bolts, the details, where to go, when to go, how to get there. And we can tell them a lot of it, but you can't tell them all of it. And so that's a big logistical challenge because not only in terms of uh, telling people where to go, but in terms of how much money you're going to spend, right? So if they say, uh, we're going to restrict you to only this tiny little sliver of space, then that, you know, could be like a really small setup is all you can do and it won't cost a lot of money. Or they could say like, hey, you got a whole big thing and you could do a whole big stage sound and, you know, whatever, have Jay-Z and Beyonce if you wanted to up there. Uh, but then it's like, well, how am I going to pay, you know, and, you know, these big stages could be thirty, forty thousand $40,000. People will donate, but, you know, you only have a limited amount of time. And so the longer that takes, the longer it is to sort of get those kind of things set up. So I definitely think sort of the in uh, determinate nature a lot of times of where you're going to be on the inaugural route and how much space you have just sort of creates a ripple effect of challenges through a lot of different things that you're you're putting together. What's the fundraising process for uh, a protest like this one? How much of your energy and time goes into that? Um, I, I would say that a, a good bit of time, I would say as an organization, probably like 30 to 
40% of the overall time of all volunteers has like some fundraising capacity. But that means everything from, you know, those of us who've been working with Answer for some time, who and, and also those of us who are also social justice activists on a number of different issues who, you know, have networks of people you can appeal to. Um, and so some people, you know, you've been around the block for a little bit, you know, a lot of people you can bring stuff in. Some people, it's like literally someone is just like soliciting their friends for like one to five dollars and then like telling them to donate on their website. So, I mean, people definitely for us, like we don't have any big donors, any big like foundations or anything like that. Um, now, occasionally you will get a person of conscience who will just see it off the Internet. So a lot of our fundraising time is really based off of like asking people and getting people um, and appealing to people on that sort of personal level, talking to our volunteers about like, hey, you don't need to be able to bring a million dollars, but if you can just from your friends raise a hundred dollars, if we have enough volunteers and each person brings a hundred dollars from their, you know, 20 friends or whatever, then that starts to add up to a lot of money. So a lot of it is also spent on that kind of grassroots fundraising where we're actually combining our fundraising with our outreach. We're going to talk to community groups. We're going out um, into churches and places like that in the same way we're telling people, hey, we're doing this demonstration. This is how we're doing. We're also saying this is totally grassroots and like, you know, to print these flyers that I just gave you, it costs X. To like do these posters that I just gave you, it costs Y. And like, hey, we know you don't have a lot, but if anyone can just sort of do like a pass the hat type of piece, if anyone can write a check, if anyone can give us cash, you know, like whatever it takes. Um, you know, we also take cards too. Of course, it's 21st century. Um, you know, we want to do that as well. So it definitely is sort of almost like a built-in part of our outreach for the demonstration that like that is a way that we think and I think it's overall good for the work because it also creates a sense of ownership amongst people when it's not just like one or two like development directors worrying about fundraising, but when it's kind of everyone's responsibility to do whatever they can to bring in what they can to make the demonstration possible so that really whatever happens at the end of the day, everyone involved can say like, well, hey, like, I made that happen. We made that happen together. It wasn't like someone who came from on high, which I think also creates a much more empowering uh, feel than like if you just have someone who can drop in a million dollars off the top, like great, and you can do a lot. But then on the same token, I don't think you get the same level of ownership from individual people about like, hey, I really like played a key. Like I didn't just show up. Like I really played a key role. People who aren't going to be here for the inauguration that want to be involved, people who uh are thinking about how they might be involved with involved with protesting uh, and, and other efforts after the inauguration uh, that that want to participate. Uh, how can they reach out? How can they help? How can they support uh, the kind of work that you do? People should go to our website, answercoalition.org, and just shoot us an email, give us a call, and tell us what you're interested in, what you're already doing, what you're working on. I mean, that's part of what I think we're going to try to do with this demonstration. I mean, we've got people who are coming building tenants unions in different cities, people working with immigrant communities who are who are looking to resist deportations, people who are working in rank-and-file grassroots labor organizations. And so what we're hoping as well is that what we're taking in from the people who are contacting us in terms of the things they're doing in different places and in different cities um, that we didn't know about in terms of the things that we're doing in different places in different cities where we are, where we do know about. For example, here in D.C., I'm very involved in the movement for black lives and also against gentrification, that we then have something of a database so that if people can't come, I mean, hey, I know it's a Friday, people have to work. If you can call us, email us, whatever, shoot us a message on Facebook, we're Answer Coalition on Facebook, uh, and also on Twitter, we want to be able to try to hook people into things that we know about, and also if they are doing something or have something going on that they think is, is relevant to this resistance against uh, what we're calling the resistance against the Trump agenda, um, that we would love to try to find a way to work with them and amplify that and also hook in other people who are talking to us as individuals looking for groups and organizations. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I get cranky in any meeting that lasts longer than about 45 minutes. If you're interested in finding out more about the work that Answer Coalition does, their website is at www.answercoalition.org. Uh, one word, no hyphens or anything. And uh, Eugene Perrier himself also has a podcast which is called By Any Means Necessary. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast, Working. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper, who does not work on a volunteer basis, but does put in many hours. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. 